0: Hey everyone! Welcome to Ask Shane Anything. This show is a reward for people who pledge at seven dollars or more per month at Patreon.com/sifted. Now, those are the only people who can participate in the live Zoom call, but everyone gets to watch the archive. Now, this technically isn't the second Saturday of September, so I think our attendance is a little lean because of that. But we do have enough people here to have at least some, somewhat of a show. Uh, and let's just get straight to it. First up. ED, H420, what's your question?
1: Hey, thanks for having us. Uh, my question is, why haven't the big game companies, the Activisions, the EAs of the world, uh, done their take on um, Mario, Zelda, Metroid? Why haven't they tried to steal a bit of Nintendo's lunch there? Uh, those are potentially 2D side-scrollers or much smaller, potentially, games that could do a 3D version, but they just don't, haven't seemed to do anything. They haven't been trying to tackle that market at all, it seems.
0: Well, I would argue that they have. Um, I think the problem is, is that they tried a really long time ago. And so people who maybe are younger than me, for sure, and maybe younger than you. To them, it may seem like, hey, these other publishers aren't trying to mimic some of the more popular games. That's because they tried to do that back in like the PS2, PS3, Xbox 360 era, and it didn't work. Um It's copying, and I think we've learned this with indie games over the last decade or so. Just simply copying the design of another game isn't good enough. There's so much, there's so much, and so many other things that go into creating and developing games that I think a lot of people don't realize. And I think, honestly, publishers didn't realize it until they tried it. I think they thought, oh, we can make a Super Mario 64 clone and it'll do just as well as Super Mario 64. Well, obviously, the advantage there is that Nintendo has Mario. But the other part of it, too, is that you can't replicate creativity. Um, I think a good example of that maybe is Rare. Um, You know, Microsoft bought Rare kind of at the beginning of the GameCube era. And I think everyone just assumed that Rare was going to go on and continue to make the same great games. Well, the problem is is that Rare technically is really just a name. Um, And every studio is really just a name. It's the people who really make the magic happen. And if you remember... Back when Microsoft bought Rare, there was a huge exodus of creative talent from Rare. A lot of the guys who have been working there for a really long time left. One of the guys, David Doak, there's a gun named after him in GoldenEye. He <laughs> left and started his own studio and started the franchise Time Splitters, which is coming back, which is pretty awesome. Um, and then you had a bunch of other guys jump ship and just kind of just go work at whatever studio. So I think the problem is that. People have learned from the mistakes of the past. They've seen these other publishers try to replicate or duplicate design and fall flat on their face. And I think everyone's realized, like, if you don't have the creativity to make those ideas shine, then it doesn't matter. And I also think it's gotten worse over the last decade, decade and a half, because there are so many indie games out there. And so I, I, it, I do struggle to agree with you that they aren't replicating this stuff, especially in indie games, because they, well, I feel like they are. Um, So
1: indie, that's a great, great point. The indie game. So we have seen successful and really good indie games. You know, your Shadow Complexes, your axiom verges and things like this. Look at Ori
0: and the Blind Forest. I mean, that's a Metroidvania, and they did the formula pretty well.
1: Yeah. So is it just that they don't? I mean, maybe like they don't have the passion to make it as good as it would need to be. I mean, surely they have the team and the and the money. They could put the people on this kind of stuff to, to do it, you know?
0: I think it's the people. They just don't have the creative talent to make it happen. Not every publisher has a Miyamoto or mm. a Kojima or somebody who, even if they aren't working on the game directly, can come in and check on the project every once in a while and kind of look at it and say, okay, it's veering off course in this way. I'm going to set it back on the tracks. Um, that's what Miyamoto has been doing. Well, I don't even know if he does that anymore, to be honest <laughs> with you, but... For the last, like, 10, 12 years, that's all Miyamoto's really done at Nintendo. He hasn't really been, like, elbows deep in game development for quite a while. He's the guy who just kind of goes around and just sprinkles his magical pixie dust on all the projects that Nintendo works on. And recently, it doesn't seem like he's even been doing that. He's really kind of turned over development to his underlings at this point. Uh, I think we saw that when, first of all, we just saw him on Nintendo Direct for the first time in a really long time.
1: I was going to say he's he, a movie producer now.
0: <laughs> right. Like he hasn't been on camera in so long. Like I was shocked to see how old he looked and really a little sad, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, oh, no, like he's getting old. Like what's going to happen? Like if when he's gone and we saw that obviously Awada died really young. He had a mm-hmm. lot of creativity left in him. Um, so I think more than anything, it's just people. It's the people who are working on the games um and if you can't keep talent and talent goes somewhere else it's hard to replace so i feel like a lot of these publishers are kind of looking for these up-and-coming directors for instance god of war ragnarok Corey barlock not the director on that game and it's funny because it's not even like he had directed a ton of them he did god of war 2 and then he did god of war 2018 and now and he's like i'm burnt out i don't want to do it anymore so he passed it on to some guy who to be fair has worked on God of War for like ever and just kind of needed his chance. I don't know if you know this, but like Stig, he used to work on God of War and you know, now he worked on God of War three and now he's off working at respawn on a bunch of other Star Wars related stuff. So they lost that talent and then Corey steps up and then Corey burns out from working on God of War 2018. And now he's passed the baton onto his underling. And that's kind of how it works. You need, those people in your organization who are willing to step up. Like I worry about like Naughty Dog, like do they have people underneath like their two guys who are going to be able to step in and, you know, take over the mantle when those guys are tired of it. Like what's up with rockstar rockstar has lost a lot of talent over the last like four or five years. Is Sam going to be able to step in and fill all those holes? Are there people Inside Rockstar at their various studios all around the globe who can step in and and they those games have magic like there are tons of open world action adventure games none of them are as popular as Grand Theft Auto why is that because there are people who work on those games who are really creative and really talented very snarky they have their finger on the pulse of pop culture they're great writers they are great comedic writers how do you replace that those people just don't grow on trees so. I think more than anything, it's the human capital of game development that affects whether clones of popular genres or popular franchises or popular games end up being successful or not. Um, we were talking before we actually started recording this about Kena, or Kena. And by the way, inside the game, they pronounce it two different ways. So <laughs> I don't know if I've ever seen that before. But it is a game that has tried to follow a template of what the developers thought was the popular action adventure, you know, design template. And it's little more than that. It really just comes down to that's all it is. And then you're like, okay, well, where's the rest of the creativity? There really isn't any in that game. So it's not something that you can, if you have a lot of money, as you mentioned, you're like, they got the money. Um, Can you hire away talent? Sure. Um, Will the talent come and work for you? Maybe. It depends on your studio, the studio's pedigree, what projects you're going to be working on, whether they feel like it's a good fit, whether they like working where they're working at the moment. been plenty of times in my career where I had offers at other places for more money, and I didn't go because I liked the people that I was working with. I liked the projects that we were working on, and I f- felt looking at the long term that if I stayed with this group of people and kept working with them, it would be better for my career in the long term. So even if you do have a lot of money and you feel like, oh, we can just poach all these people. And I'll be honest, when I went to Game Trailers, I did poach a lot of people from G4. But, but it, it just having money to do it isn't going to get it done. You have to make sure, one, that the people are interested and they'll come over and work for you. And two, that you're picking the right people who can really kind of change the face of a project from something that's just you know a very rote example of a, of a genre to something that really sings. Again, going back to God of War, what is, what is it about that game that makes it so much different from all the other games that are designed just like it? Because it doesn't have groundbreaking design. If anything, it's kind of a throwback because it's not this just big, gigantic open world where you can go do anything. There are sections of the world that, at least the last version, there were loads between the sections of the world. It was the little stuff dabbled in. How good the combat felt. The axe. Just the feeling of the axe when it comes back to Kratos. All that little stuff adds up. you have to have talented people behind the scenes working on that stuff to really make it sing. So I think it's more just about, you know, how talented are the people that are working with you and not necessarily about how closely can we replicate this design that's been really successful. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. Joseph, what's your question?
2: Uh, Well, I want to say that um, on the other topic quick, I think that maybe it's a little unfair, of me to say this, but I really think that Nintendo's success comes a lot, like at least 50% from the nostalgia for those franchises. I don't think that people like me who didn't really grow up playing... I don't play Mario or Zelda or anything as a kid, really. Like, the first Zelda I played was Ocarina of Time on the GameCube version that they had. So, like, I don't have any nostalgia for it, so I don't like those kinds of games. So, for me, seeing a new Mario come out doesn't do anything. Seeing a new Zelda come out doesn't mean anything to me. So, I think that Nintendo really banks on its nostalgia a lot in terms of why it sells so well and why other companies don't do that, because they don't have that nostalgia. Now, have you played those games
0: though, or do you just assume that you're not going to like them and not play I them? Mean, because I
2: played Breath of the Wild, I played, played Super Mario Odyssey. Like, there you fine. did play Super Mario Odyssey, okay. I think, you didn't I played, think that there was I, I a figured, lot of creativity in that game? There's creativity in the game, but I wasn't like, oh, this is amazing, because it was just jump, jump, collect, jump, jump, ju- like, I mean, that's that's not exciting to me because i'm a story gamer i grew up in the realm of where stories are played
0: gotcha uh, you know well, i could games. totally see why you would not like nintendo's games if you are a player who really gravitates towards narrative because
2: yeah, i'm i mean i'm playing games have none right really
0: now. let's be honest like you can count like the story beats in breath of the wild on like one hand
2: yeah uh, yeah there's one per beast and then like a before and after cutscenes. like <laughs> I, look i'll agree with you
0: I will actually agree with you on this. Um, now, I would say that I do think there's a lot of creativity in Super Mario Odyssey. Sure,
2: I give creativity to them. I think there's creativity, but I don't think that's enough to make a game sell in the modern era. Well, they do sell I mean, the They era. sell because of the I mean, Breath of the Wild yeah. sold out the wazoo. I don't think that without the nostalgia of Zelda and Mario, that that creativity that they do have is enough to make it sell at the levels that you want it to. I don't think that... Activision is going to publish a platformer that sells that way, even if they put all that money behind it, even if it's the most creative thing in the world because it doesn't have that Mario nostalgia factor.
0: I I would also agree with some elements of that because what's the only publisher in the industry that can publish a 3D platformer and sell 14 million copies of it? It's only Nintendo. Yeah. There have been great platformers, 3D platformers that have come out across the last 20 years. None of them even come close to approaching what Mario does. So you're right. People see Mario and they're like, oh, I remember Mario 64 and Mario Sunshine and Mario Galaxy. And I think they're just like, I liked those games. I'm in on this one. Whereas there could be other 3D platformers that are better. I would argue there haven't been any, but there could be, and people would never even give them a chance. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do agree with that. It's, It's what we've been calling the Nintendo bump for a really long time. People give Nintendo a pass for things that they would not give that same pass to other publishers for. So you're right. Breath of the Wild. Hardly any story at all. does yeah. has not stop people. And I think maybe part of it, too, is that Nintendo has trained its fans to, one, accept that its games just aren't really going to be narrative-driven. And if they are, they're not going to be very good. Because when Nintendo does try to create narrative-driven games, they're not great. Um, so I think they've conditioned their fans mm. to just accept that that's the way it is for a lot of its most popular franchises. I think Metroid maybe is an exception there. I think fans maybe expect a little bit more narrative in the Metroid games, but it's still not great. Like the stories in Metroid aren't amazing and they're not mind bending they don't make you think and they don't make you question humanity or anything like that, that I feel like a lot of the greatest narrative driven games do. Yeah. Um, so look, I'm no Nintendo apologist. So I totally hear what you're saying. And I could see if you didn't grow up in the N64 or the Super Nintendo era, you don't just have this built in pass. Go collect $250 for Nintendo that a lot of fans do. So I totally respect that opinion. Um, I would argue that. That Nintendo's games tend to have magic in them that I don't see in a lot of other developers, but a lot of times you have to dig to get to it. Like, For whatever reason, like some of the best stuff in Super Mario Odyssey are the moons that are like the hardest to get or are later on in the game that a lot of people may never see. Yeah. Um, And maybe Nintendo could be better at bringing some of that stuff to the forefront and putting it at the beginning of the game so everybody can experience it. Uh, But I hear you, man. I agree with you. And I think most people who aren't fanboys agree with you. Um, Nintendo makes a certain style of game. You either love it or you don't love it. Or as you said, you've been kind of indoctrinized into it. And so when you're well, seriously, when you're a kid and you're five years old to like 11 years old, you're very vulnerable. If, if something is like a big part of your life, you're going to think it's awesome for the rest of your life. I'm a Steelers fan. Mm. In the seventies, the Steelers were like superheroes to me. Like I was young. I didn't really understand the sport of football. All I know is that nobody could beat them. And they had these personalities and like kiss when I was a kid. Kiss were superheroes to me like now they're just this rock band that used to wear makeup or whatever. But I was like four or five years old in the 70s and kid and I saw kiss. I was like, they were like the X-Men to me. <laughs> they just happened to play music. And so I loved kiss until I got older and realized that they were honestly terrible. You know, their music is really easy to play and it's all bar chords. And, you know, but I was just completely indoctrinated, indoctrinated by kiss. I was, in do- I was probably indoctrinated by Nintendo, but because I've stuck with this so long, I've learned over time that they have strengths and they have weaknesses just like every other developer. So I totally well, get what you're saying, and I agree with a lot of it.
1: That's why it's called your formative years. And it's it true is. for, for yeah. music, for entertainment, for even sexual things like religion, all this stuff. I mean, religion is like a big all one. All the stuff that gets implanted. Yeah. When you're.
2: Yeah. You, you guys talk all the time, how you and Matt don't like Dragon Ball or anything about Dragon Ball. I love Dragon Ball more than anything. Cause that's right. I grew up with it. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. born in 93. So like Dragon Ball was the thing when I was born and yep. you know, when I was growing up. So like I have a nephew, my...
0: same deal. He grew up watching Dragon Ball every day and he loves it. So, He plays, he's a big gamer, and he's always asking me, like, what's up with the next Dragon Ball game? And I'm like, well, I can tell you one thing. It's going to be mediocre. So (laughs) he's like, I don't care. It's Dragon Ball. And you're right. I mean, whatever. That's why there are fanboys of PlayStation or Nintendo, because when kids were growing up, either they got a Nintendo or they got a PlayStation. And so now here they are in their early 20s or late teens or whatever. They're a Nintendo fanboy or they're a PlayStation fanboy. Or at this point, they're an Xbox fanboy. Um, I'll never forget when the Xbox, the original Xbox launched and there were fanboys. And I was like, how did that happen? <laughs> like literally like an 18 to like 20 some year old dudes who just out of the blue decided that they were going to be Xbox or whatever the stupid word is for Xbox fanboys. Because I, I reviewed a bunch of early games and like I railed on the snowboarding game Amped and I got so much hate mail. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, where are these people coming from? So those people actually weren't like indoctrinated at a young age. I'll never figure that one out. But for the most part, that is how it works. Like whatever you you consumed or watched or played or listened to when you're really young, it is going to stick with you for a really, really long time through your life. So, yeah,
2: I try to be a little discerning. Like I, I have Dragon Balls Kakarot, but I didn't buy it at full price. I got it on a sale and I didn't buy uh-huh. the season pass at full price. I bought it on a sale, you know, so well, I, you're
0: reasonable. You understand that I, the I games try. aren't. Top tier, but they're pretty good, and you like the IP, and that's totally fine. Like, I'm glad that games are made for people like you, you know. I I, I
2: do my best with that. (laughs) So, my actual question I'll drag this one out a little bit. My actual question for you is What is your favorite thing about running your own business versus when you were working for a corporate structure, and what is your least favorite thing? Okay, situation.
0: Um, my favorite thing is the open schedule without a doubt being able to time shift things so um, for example when i was first hired at game trailers and it was literally i went in for my first day of work it was me it was brandon it was john slessor jeff groats and brent that was it i was the only content guy obviously brent was the tech guy he also built sifted um brandon was like a video editor basically and the other two guys were the founders of the company so i was like the first real employee that they had and so when i got in there i had to hire everyone the entire staff at game trailers that was going to actually run the site and produce a site and um at the time everyone who i wanted to hire was up in san francisco because that's at that point all of games journalism was in san francisco everybody Um, And so I had to go to like my old colleagues and try to pitch them on moving down to Los Angeles. And they had set up their lives in San Francisco and they were like, what's this game trailers thing? It's a startup. I have a job at GameSpot. It's established. It's not going anywhere. Um, I have a job at IGN. It's been around already for years and years. I feel safer here. It was hard to get people to leave San Francisco to come down and work in L.A. Um, and that's when I started thinking about poaching people from G4. But anyway, the first person I tried to hire for Ryan Stevens' position, the, ultimately the job that Ryan Stevens would have, and I'm not going to name his name, but he was a guy that I had known for forever. And he was just kind of a freelancer. He had written freelance reviews for me at G4 and Tech TV for years and years. And I knew him personally because he also lived in LA. And so I hired him. And he had been, again, he had been a freelancer his whole life. He had never had a staff position anywhere. So I hire him, he comes in, he works the first couple of days. It's fine because it's really just orientation. I'm like, here's where everything is, here's our equipment, like, here's your job, what you're going to be doing, just all that kind of stuff you always get when you start the first day on the job. Third day on the job was when he really had to start working. And I noticed towards the end of the day, he was like antsy. Like I noticed he would keep getting up from his desk and going to like the water cooler or checking the fridge or whatever. He just he didn't seem like he could sit down and stay sitting down and actually work. And then the next day, he come, he calls me and he's like, Hey, I just want to let you know I'm coming in late today. And I'm like, What do you mean you're coming in late today? I'm like, it's like your fourth day, it's Thursday. He's like, Oh, I need to get my car smogged. And for those of you who don't live in California, once your car gets to a certain age, there's no car inspections here, by the way. I don't know if you guys anyone knows this. Your, your car doesn't get inspected every year, like like mine needed to in Pennsylvania. But what does happen is after your car, I think once it's like eight years old, you have to get it smogged every other year. So you take it into this shop. They stick a thing in your tailpipe to make sure that, you know, your, your car isn't over polluting, basically. And he goes, I need to get my car smogged. And I'm like, well, no, you don't. You need to come to work, dude. Like, you can't miss work to get your car smogged. And he, it would not compute for him. He's like, but he could have been a freelancer his whole life. And he could just do things when he wanted to. And then just make sure that he got his work done. And I was like, that's not how this is going to work, man. Like, you have to be at work. Like, we're a startup. Like, you need to be in here. You need to sit down and start figuring out who we're going to hire for our staff. And he, it wouldn't compute, compute for him. So he begrudgingly came into work. And he came into work. And we got in an altercation. And he, go, he comes in to me. He's like, so when am I supposed to get my car smog, Shane? And I'm like, on Saturday. Like everybody else in the world who works, like, during the week. And he's like, that's my free time. And I'm like, that's how life works. And he basically quit. He was like, well, this isn't for me. (laughs) I was like, what? Okay. And I could not understand it. I had never worked as a freelancer. I had always worked at a staff job where I worked Monday through Friday and a lot of overtime. And I was really disappointed. I'm like, dude, I went to bat for you to get you this job. I gave you the biggest salary you've ever had in your life. And he lasted four days. And that's when I started going to G4 and poaching people from G4. So anyway... Now that I've kind of been in that position for quite a while now, that is the most awesome part of not working a nine to five is if you need to do something, you can do it. Now, you have to be dedicated. You can't just like say, well, I'm just going to do this and then just screw off for the rest of the day. If you do something in the middle of the day that takes up a couple hours, you're going to work at least a couple hours later that night. Um, if you don't do that, you're going to fail, obviously, because you're not going to get anything done. So that's what I like the most, being able to time shift my schedule. And I am responsible. I am like a workaholic. So it's not a big deal for me to be like, I got to take three hours to do this today. I'm going to work until 10 p.m. tonight or 11 p.m. tonight. It's just the way it is. And I appreciate that more than probably anything. Um, As far as the things that I don't like about kind of working as because technically, I'm a freelancer, basically. Um, The things I don't like are the things that are. and and now I'm getting older too. It's a bigger deal. It's things like, and I was just talking to a friend of mine who just started his own business, like right before COVID hit. And we just had like this, like come to God moment via text where we're both sharing our experiences, running our own companies. And he's in the same boat. Like he's maybe a couple years younger than me, but it's like benefits paid time off, like being able to take time off and not have stuff go bad. Like I took, like nine days off. I was even nine days off. I was gone for nine days. I came back, and our Patreon had dropped like four hundred dollars. Like that is—it's soul crushing. I can't even put it into words. You feel like you're held hostage in a lot of ways, and part of that is just the Patreon model. Um, so, you know, I've never worked as a real freelancer where. You know, either I work and I get paid or if I don't work, I don't get paid. And that's a whole other topic that I can't even fathom what that's what that's like, because you're paying at that point. You're on the exchange, paying a ton of money for your health insurance and stuff like that. Um, But that's the thing, like like coming back from a vacation and realizing your pay was just docked. That's hard, especially when you work as many hours and work as hard as I do. It's very discouraging. Um, especially when you message it beforehand and you beg people, you're like, please like, don't do this. Like I need time off. People don't give an F. They're just like, where's game face. Like, where is it? That's two episodes. Now Of there's no game face and they don't care. And it's their money. They can do what they want with it. And I totally respect that. But from the perspective of the person who's working for them, and I do have like hundreds of bosses. That's really what it comes down to for me is like, all you guys are my bosses. Like, When everything I do, I think about you guys. I'm like, are they going to be pissed? Are they going to drop their pledges? Are they going to delete their pledges? Are they going to write a nasty comment on our Patreon or on our YouTube channel or whatever? Um, That's the hard part for me. Not having a 401k, um, like I have a 401k, but it's literally sat stagnant now for like eight years because you can't contribute to it privately. You have to be a part of a corporation to contribute to your 401k. So if you want to, you can set up an IRA, but you can only contribute like $7,000 a year to an IRA. So I miss having a 401k, having those benefits, having paid vacation, um, having cheap insurance. Like Luckily, my wife works at a huge company and I get health insurance through her, thank God, because this year I would have went broke. Um, But a lot of people don't have that. So it's just a lot of the stuff that people rebel against corporate America for when you leave it, You miss it. Um, It's security and peace of mind is what it ultimately comes down to. I feel like I'm always frazzled. I'm always worried. I'm always concerned. There's always like this equation in my mind going, if I do this, what's the repercussion of it? What's going to happen? Am I going to lose money? Because the the other problem with Patreon is like, it's so hard to build it back. So we lost $300 a month in a week and a half while I was gone. It's going to take forever to get it unless like one of our amazing patrons, people who contribute way more than they should have to steps up and is like, Oh, that sucks. Here's an extra 30 bucks or whatever. Um, otherwise you lose that 300 bucks. It's like, dude, that's going to take me like eight months to get back. Like it's brutal. It's totally brutal. Um, I think working, you know, by yourself and that's endemic to what I'm doing right now. I work by myself a lot. You don't have like any paths on the back. You, you, there's no one there to say that's a terrible idea because <laughs> sometimes I come up with terrible ideas and I execute them and they don't work and whatever. So there's no one to do that. There's no one to step in and do anything like while I was gone, I still worked. Like I still every day spent some time like, cause we were publishing Pactor Factor. Like before I left, I worked like a hundred hour week I had created like, so I had to create all the episodes of Pactor Factor that you guys were watching that week. And I had to create all the ones that you guys were going to watch while I was gone. And upload them all to YouTube and get the thumbnails done for all of them and create the MP3 versions of them for the podcast feeds and set up the podcast feeds and all that crap I had to do before I left. And then I'm on vacation and I'm like sitting at my mom's dinner table going like, my mom's like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be on vacation. I'm like, welcome to my life. Like this is how it is. So that's probably what I miss the most. Just the structure of working in corporate America, the security of working in corporate America, um, because generally if you're working at a corporate job, if you're working hard, you're not going to lose your job. I'm sure you guys have all worked tons of jobs where there's a couple people who suck at every job you work at people who work harder to not work than they would if they just worked. Um, and so as long as you're not somebody like that, like you're generally going to keep your job in corporate America, unless your company just completely goes belly up and you know, it just is really struggling. So there's just so much more security at working at a regular job. There's so much less stress at working at a normal job. Um, I worry all the time. I'm always worried. I'm always running these scenarios through my mind. Like, what if we do this? What if we stop doing this show? What's that going to do? And how are we going to replace it? And how are people going to feel about that? It's it's crazy, in all honesty. And it can be exciting at times too, um, you know. But I feel like a lot of like a lot of things in life that are really exciting eventually you hit this kind of crescendo where you, the law its like a law of diminishing returns. Like it gets to a certain point where it's not exciting anymore. It's just driving you up the wall. Um, and I felt that way when I got back from my vacation and saw what had happened to our Patreon, I was just, I was devastated. I was like, you know, cause what had happened was we had somebody pledge $500 a month to come on game face. And that's coming in October. He's actually going to end up coming to LA and be on the show live in our studio, which is really Cool. cool. But what happened was people saw that huge bump and they just bailed. They're like, oh, they don't need me anymore. So either we have people completely dropping their pledges or just people who were like on the Patreon. Give me credit for game face. We saw like four people who had been on that for like four years, drop their pledge down to four dollars a month. Like so. I don't know. I feel like we play by different rules. I feel like people look at our Patreon and they're like, okay, as long as it's at $4,000 a month, it's okay. It's not okay. I'm losing money at $4,000 a month. And then if it goes above that, they're like, well, I don't have to contribute as much anymore and they drop their pledges or they leave. And it just leaves this hole like we're in right now that I don't know when or how we'll ever get out of it. So it's just, there's a lot, I think there's a lot more stress Um, I think, you know, you have significant others who are like, why aren't you working a corporate job? Why why don't you have a 401k and blah, blah, blah. And my wife's been amazing. Don't get me wrong. Amazing through this whole thing. But every once in a while you have a conversation where she hints about, you know, stuff like that. And it makes you feel bad. You're like, you're right. Like we're gonna have to retire together. And are we gonna have enough money to retire because I'm following this dream that I have? Like, so it's all that stuff that, um, really bothers me the most about not working at kind of a corporate nine to five job. Um and I guess maybe the follow up from you would be well which do you like better? <laughs> I don't know if you were thinking about that but I would guess that was probably going to be your follow up. And I think it would be hard to choose. Um because there's good and bad on both sides. If my business were crazy successful, obviously, I would be like, oh, it's, you know, running your own company and doing your own thing and not working, not having a boss and blah blah blah. Um but because the company has like where we've survived but very little beyond that. That's pretty much how it's been. It's just been this constant edge of surviving and not surviving. I think it's tainted my impressions a little bit of kind of being my own boss. Um, So I think there's pros and cons to each one. I think a lot of it just depends on what the situation is on whether you're successful or not at both your private thing that you're working on or the company that you're working at. You know, the first five years at game trailers were the most amazing years of my career coming in, and just watching my team do amazing stuff every day, watching our numbers explode every day, um, all that stuff. Like, those are feelings that I'll probably never, ever get at another job again because it was a startup. And so it's, it's very easy when you, you're in a startup, you're starting at zero. And so every improvement is like, wow, amazing. Like, you know, our numbers for the first three years, like, it was insane. Like, my first year at Game Trailers, we went from 250,000 uniques a month, that's where they were at when MTV acquired them, which now you would never get acquired with for that traffic. It just wouldn't happen. Uh, but they did back then. And we went from 250,000 to like 12 million in like my first year at game trailers. Like you just, that never happens. And within three years, we were right there with IGN. It's insane. Like it'll never happen again. I don't think unless they, they find some new type of video technology that, you know, comes along and someone's first to jump on it. Like we were with like HD video and stuff, but Um, There's pros and cons to both. Um, I appreciate, obviously, like I'm still blown away that people just give me money to make video game content. It's still incredible. Like, and even though our Patreon totals are down right now and we've never been up with like the kind of funnies or the easy allies or any of that stuff. And that's disappointing because I feel like our content can hang with their content like all day, every day. And that's frustrating for me. But still... It's amazing that there are enough people willing to just basically donate money to me to create video game content. I don't think that shine ever goes away. So um, it's a mixed bag, you know, and I think generally in life, that's kind of how it works. <laughs> I've never had a situation in my life where I'm like, damn, everything is perfect. Like everything. Like either I've been my professional. I, yeah, I don't think you do. I don't think you ever no. hit that zen. Um, well, sometimes your my-
1: drive goes away if you do.
0: Sometimes, right? Yeah. But I mean, like, well, my... that
1: would be what would happen if you get perfect, if everything's perfect, yeah. then you're just like, well, well oh, I don't need to get up. I don't need to get up in the morning. Yeah.
0: And there's other things that can affect that. Like, you know, towards the end of my time at GT, I wouldn't say I was less motivated, but I felt helpless because the people who were above me were calling the shots because our numbers were falling and um, they wouldn't listen to us. Like the team that was creating content, they, yeah. They were just like, you know what? Like my job's on the line because of these falling numbers. And I'm going to dictate what we're going to do. And that's where you saw GT motion and you saw game trailers, terrible, terrible attempt at a blog where they hired one person to compete with Kotaku. Like, well, I hired him, but you know, they're like, okay, we're going to launch a blog to compete with Kotaku. And they're like, and you're gonna be able to hire one person. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And, and again, so, you know, towards the end where everything started spinning out of our control and the SVPs and the EVP started calling the shots, I became a little less motivated as far as like, am I going to work like a 14 hour day to Or am I going to work like a 10 hour day to day? Um, yeah. Because it was out of my control and it didn't seem to matter how much I worked at that point. Um, I mean, the
2: moment, the moment Viacom sued YouTube over, over copyright infringement, GT was dead. I mean, that, that was, was it. it. That, that was, was that it. Was I'm, I'm a lawyer. So like, I know Oh, that you, you got goes- it. Did you follow that whole case? No, I was I was uh, too young at that point to, okay. it to really understand. But I, it's taught in law school. Um, so my specialty in law school was copyright and all that stuff. Oh,
0: did they That's actually funny. cover that case in law school?
2: It is a it is a it is a landmark case. So wow, for, for I had no copyright.
0: idea. I had yeah, no idea about that. But you're right. That was the death knell. We were. Yep. I mean, we saw it coming. Like we started seeing our traffic falling for trailers. Um, And we were serving ads against trailers like we have a 15 second pre-roll running before every video game trailer. And like our original content numbers weren't falling at all. In fact, they continued to grow the whole freaking time. It was the cheap traffic that we got for people to watch video game trailers. And they're like, why would I watch them here when I can go watch them on YouTube without an ad? And we told them that we're like, look, we got to get our YouTube channel going. They're, They're like, there's no way in hell we're launching a YouTube channel. Like it was just not even in the discussion. And in fact, I was discouraged about bringing it up in like the executive meetings. They're like don't even bring it up, Shane. I'm like they need to hear it. Like because if they don't, we're going to go away. And they were just like whatever. <laughs> like
2: yeah, because I mean, of- YouTube YouTube mastered the video players just like that and so I mean I you guys went through like three or four different video players in the time that I was watching GT mm-hmm. and and so I uh, you know, I still watch the GT content because I like things like Final Bossman and I you know I like trailers and things of that sort on there. And so like that you guys still have the good content, but I can see people being like, I have to deal with this player that like freezes and doesn't load properly. And, and that so
0: that killed crash. us too was moving over to Viacom's site template. Yeah. The replay the last replatforming we did. It it just killed that was the final nail, really. Because you're right, the player was awful. And again, yeah. we told them they didn't care. See the problem was the EVPs and SVPs were the ones calling the shots and they assumed they were going to keep their jobs no matter what they're like, if GT goes away and we sell it to someone, like they ended up selling it to defy for like a handful of stock or whatever. Um, if that goes away, like I'm working on all this other stuff, I'm not going away. So I'm going to cover my ass and I'm going to start calling the shots on GT. And if it doesn't work out, so what? And that's <laughs> what happened. They started calling the shots. They started doing stupid stuff. They didn't fight against, them putting GT on the Viacom platform and literally the day the new site launched on Viacom's platform, GT was dead. It was dead. Yeah. The player's terrible. We lost all our redirects from search and it, it was dead. So yeah,
2: it's a shame because the content was great and you know, the personalities and the people were fantastic. And, and, you know, it's just, it's, I mean, it's, it's almost no different than the Patreon thing. You got to do what makes the customers happy. And the customers wanted YouTube. They wanted YouTube channels and they wanted easy access to a working player. And, you know, when you have people up in that upper level who aren't as savvy when it comes to technology and modern things, which is a, obviously a generational problem to, to an extent, uh, you end up costing companies. and, and People's I'm
0: jobs right. and their livelihoods. Yeah. yeah. There's a yeah. lot of people that I worked with at GT that just disappeared. Like Justin Spear, where's he? Once he lost his job at GT, that was like it for him. Like he, I don't think he even works in games anymore. I don't even know what he does. Yeah, there's And there's a lot of people like him who that their job at GT, like at this point will probably be the pinnacle of their careers. You know, a lot of them just ended up having to go back to do like whatever jobs, because what we do is so niche um, that it's hard to find work. And you yeah. always have now kids are like working on YouTube when they're like 11, so they know how to produce video, they know how to do all that stuff by the time they're like 20 and ready to be employed. So it's um it's unfortunate what happened and honestly, like most of the people who made the decisions that caused all of it don't give a damn, you know. Yeah. They're just like, "That's okay. You know, I'm an EVP, I'm an SVP. I'll get a golden parachute if I leave here and I'll get hired immediately somewhere else." And they all did. All those people that killed GT, they're all making way more money now than they did when they were working with me at Viacom. All of them. And I know
2: some people that work at Viacom, uh, they're not the most generous employer from what I (laughs) understand.
0: They're not. Yeah, they're not. And um, yeah, I had to fight for raises for my guys every year. And every night that place would clear out that floor. And we had like at that time we had GT and Spike Digital on the same floor. And so there's like 120 people working in there on that floor total. And every night everyone else is gone. Who's left there? the GT people, every night. None of them ever stayed late. Five o'clock, could click, you're hearing them locking up their offices and walking out, and we're all there till like eight, nine o'clock. And all those people still have jobs. Some of them are still at Viacom, like still, and making buku bucks. A lot of the people who work their asses off to make those people look good, gone, they're working it like, Walmart or whatever now. It's really messed up what happened there. I could go on for hours about it, but someday I'm writing a book.
2: <laughs> you should. That would be good. I think a book yeah. would be fascinating from, from your perspective. But I think When, when have, I re- when you know, retire, tall.
0: my two projects are I'm writing a book and I'm making an album. So that'll happen someday. I don't know if people even care what I write at that point, but I'm still going to write it and we'll see what happens with it. Um, but That'd yeah, I'll, I'll write a book someday. Um, I had to sign a bunch of paperwork when I left Viacom. Oh yeah. That that precluded me from doing stuff for quite a while, but that stuff's all either about to expire or has expired already. So um, yeah, Yeah, eventually
2: things are, are 10 years, 10 year things or or depending on your level, like three year things. I don't know if you saw, but Colin Moriarty just interviewed Philip Mewson, the plagiarist from IGN from like a couple of years back. He had a three year moratorium on speaking about it. And so when that broke, when that ended, he was able to go and talk all about it in like a, almost two hour, like hour and a half, two hour long interview about it. And that's, that's very common for, for people that leave companies to sign things of that sort. So yeah, like
0: when I left there, like they took care of me. So I shouldn't complain too much. Like they're Mm -hmm. like, dude, like you built this company. So let's figure out some way that when you're ready to go, that we'll take care of you. And they did, but I had to sign paperwork to make that happen. So um, eventually all that stuff will go away and I'll be able to talk a lot more candidly about a lot of stuff that happened there. Um, And look, I'm not interested in like ruining people or making people look terrible. And I'll probably use aliases for a lot of the stories I tell, like the people who they who it really is about. They'll know that I'm talking about them, but nobody else will. So I'm not going to like go scorched earth or anything on people (laughs) and make people look bad. Um, But there's a story there that should be told. Um, whether a lot of people care about it enough that people will buy a book about it, I have no idea, but I'm eventually going to write it. So we'll see and how it
2: anything goes. Anything with enough time behind it becomes nostalgic. You'll have plenty of people in their you know late 30s when you write that book, or 40s who were fans of it in their 20s, and they'll be like, oh, GT, I remember GT. What happened with that?
0: Yeah. The book. Well, the other part of it, too, is that like, people who know me from the games industry, I hate to say it, but like they don't really know me. Like I have and ha- and had and have these whole other lives outside of this. Like I was in bands for a really long time. I was in like the punk and hardcore scene. Like I still have hundreds of friends from that. Like when I was at home back by my mom's house, that's what I did when I lived there. So people were coming up to me being like, yo, are you in a band like in LA? Like, why aren't you in a band in LA? Like you were the, I was a lead singer in like these three bands that people loved in our local area. And they're like, I can't believe you're not in a band. And I'm like, I haven't been in a band in like 20 some years. Like, and then the same thing with like DJing and the rave scene and all that stuff. That was a huge part of my life. And it's, you know, all that stuff has kind of fallen by the wayside as I've gotten into my career proper, but man, do I have some stories to tell from those scenes? Just insane stories that when I tell them, people don't believe. And in all honesty, like some stories that I can't tell until I'm ready to not work again, honestly, because some of the stuff that I would write, I think, if people read it, they'd be like, I'm not hiring you. I'm <laughs> just being honest. Like, so there's this whole other life that I've had um, that will be a part of the book as well. And so it'll be interesting to see if that scares people off because it's not going to be 100% about my life in the gaming industry and all the sites and publications that I worked for and all the. I write more models. than one book. <laughs> That's true, but I, I'm trying to set my goals realistically. <laughs> um, so, anyway, I have a friend actually from my hometown who just wrote a book about growing up in that hometown. It's called a Psy gone as in Psy and then gone. He was a refugee from Saigon who ended up living in my little town. And his book is all about what it was like for someone in the seventies and eighties to come into basically an all white town in rural Pennsylvania and what it was like growing up there. And he was in the punk and hardcore scene. So I'm actually, I'm actually in the book and like all my friends are in the book um, and it's been, it was a New York Times bestseller. So once he did that, and you should read the book by the way. It's amazing. It is whether you grew up there or not. It's a great book. Again, it's called Saigon, uh, and it's written by a really good friend of mine named Phuc Tran. Um, and here's a funny story about him. <laughs> One day we were in school and we had a substitute teacher, and um, she was calling roll. And she got to his name, and she <laughs> she looked at the paper, she looked up and kind of scoured the classroom, looked down again, and she goes fuck because his name is spelled phuc anyway it's his book is great i highly recommend reading it Uh, but he inspired me because i had planned to write a book at some point for a long time but i was like it's probably not going to do well and it'll be this thing that like 50 people read or whatever Uh, but he wrote that it became a new york times bestseller and so that inspired me i was like okay like i could write a book that people will read too so So anyway, when I'm ready to retire, like, I'll write a book that will tell a lot of interesting stories about what happened. And I think different parts of it will apply to different people. But I think overall, people will be like, Oh, wow, like, especially people who know me from the games industry. There's a few people like me in the games industry, like James Milky is a lot like me. He came from like the DJ rave scene before he started doing games journalism. And like, the stories from like the nineties raves that I went to, like you can't even fathom the stuff that I've seen at 4:30 in the morning at some dirty warehouse outside of Baltimore or whatever, back when it was completely illegal. And we were just breaking into warehouses with sound systems and just throwing massive parties with like a thousand people. Like there's just, there's a lot of stories for me to tell. Um, it'll be interesting to see if people who know me from the games industry will be interested to read them or not, but I hope so. So are you
1: writing all these down sort of like in notes for, I don't so have don't to them?
0: like, because my friends when I get together with my friends, we just tell the stories. And so they're revived again and they fill in the details again. And I get a different perspective on what happened again. Um, and so when I'm ready to write it, I'll be reaching out to a lot of those people. And I'll be like, what do you remember about this night? Or what do you remember about this band practice or whatever? So um, as long as people don't start dying on me, I think I'll be okay, <laughs> but you're right. I probably should start taking better notes than I have, particularly on like, My really early life, um, you know, from being a kid until I was like 12 or 13, uh, because my sister died when it was just the fifth anniversary of that uh, yesterday. And it was a real rough day for me. But um, she was my source for all that stuff, you know, because we were kind of tossed around from parent to parent while we were growing up. And like she was a year and a half older than me. So she remembered a lot of stuff that I was just too young to remember at all. So I lost that resource. And there's really nobody else to get that information from. And so I wished I had kind of sat down with her at a certain point and just kind of went over a bunch of stuff, but I didn't
2: Yeah, do audio Um, recording. So just conversations or or thoughts.
0: Yeah, I wish I had done it, but I didn't. And she's gone. So uh, some of that stuff I'm going to have to like, I don't know. And even like a lot of my parents, friends have died at this point because they're getting older and they could have filled in some of those blanks. So um, part of my early history is going to be lost forever, probably. But anything from like 13 on, I think I'm good. Uh, I have a pretty good memory, uh, almost too good of a memory. But to be honest with you, it drives me crazy sometimes. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be an interesting project. I just want to make sure that when I retire, I stay, I keep doing stuff. That I just don't become this person that sits down in front of the TV every day, like my mom in all honesty, and just watches TV shows all day. So those are kind of my two big projects when I'm ready to... To call today all i really care about is that this show is good content and i think that was a great discussion so thank you aaron thank you joseph for being a part of it um if you guys want to be a part of this for october you just need to pledge at seven dollars per month or more at patreon.com slash sifted again this zoom call is exclusive for those at ple- who pledge at that tier or higher but we make the archive available for everyone so on behalf of everyone who showed up this week or this month um we'll see you next month Take care